Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, good evening, everyone. This is Greg Rashid again with another edition of the Root and Roots show heard every Saturday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and also Fridays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and sometimes on Sundays on special shows and all. And you can call in listeners at 424-675-8315. And usually I play music before I introduce my guests, but today I'm just going to get into just interviewing my guests because I have a lot of folks who follow me on some of the baseball sites that are interested in this guest. And at this time of year, over the years, when it becomes late February, March, I get a lot of baseball books. That lets me know spring training. And always I get books about Brooklyn Dodgers. And usually I say, oh, here's another Brooklyn Dodger book. Uh, and I got one this year, the Gil Hodges, A Hall of Fame Life. And I got to say, this book is excellent. And I have on the line Mort Zachter, who's the author of the book, Gil Hodges, A Hall of Fame Life. And this is on the University of Nebraska Press. Are you there, uh, Mort? Yes, Greg, I'm here. Thank you for having me on. Well, thank you for being on this evening. This is a this is an excellent. I've written I've read like tons of books on baseball over the years, and tons of books about the Brooklyn Dodger players. And and this is more about just being a Brooklyn Dodger. This book is because it talks about right. his experiences with the Mets. And and what I want to get into because I'm in the D.C. area to Washington Senators because I was happy to see that you put an extensive piece on there about the Senators. This is, you know, the Washington Senators of the 60s, the expansion Senators, are kind of forgotten in many cases. So I was happy that you did that, but the first thing I want to ask you is, uh, I was reading the beginning of the book, and uh, I saw that you lived down the street from Gil Hodges when you were growing up. But how right. did you get? Yeah, how did you get the uh, nerve, being a former tax attorney and tax professor, and your first book was about Doe, a memoir? How did you end up writing a, a sports book and doing a great job um, at it? It, it um, <laughs> maybe if I knew what I was getting myself into, I would have started because it took me a long time to do it. Um, but I'm happy that I did. Um, I was motivated because Gil Hodgers is one of these people who was incredibly famous in his day. In the 1950s, he was one of the most best-known and one of the most beloved by the fans, baseball players, in really in America, not just in Brooklyn where he played it. He's been largely forgotten because he was a humble, modest guy who wasn't looking about promoting himself. He was a a team player. He had his focus on the team. He had his focus as a manager. It was not all about Gil Hodges um, as a person when when he would meet people. Uh, I think one of the best lines for one of the people I interviewed was from Arnold Haino, who was a writer in that era, and he said, when you interview Gil Hodges, you interviewed a person, not a personality. And I wanted to try and 
bring to a new generation of fans an understanding of this guy who was, as you mentioned, my childhood hero, but I lived a few blocks uh, from where he lived when I was a little kid growing up in Brooklyn in the 60s. And I was a little kid when the, when he was playing, but I was too young to remember actually the Brooklyn Dodgers. I remember him only initially his last year with the Mets, but mainly as the manager when I was growing up for the Washington right. Senators. And, right. you know, and I, I looked at, you know, I'm glad you said, Mort, that how popular he was because when you look at clips on YouTube of this guy, you see that in the 50s, early 60s, I mean, he was just legendary. Before he goes to the Mets, he's just right. legendary. And he, he I always... Was, yeah. Go ahead. Okay, no, I'll let you finish the question. I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, because I have a lot what of stuff to ask you. Uh, I was just going to say that he was really as famous for the kind of person he was. I mean, the press played up the fact... I mean, he lived in Brooklyn... He lived there all year round, and after the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles in 1958, that was their first season there, he stayed in Brooklyn. He was loyal to Brooklyn, um, and that created, added to his popularity locally. That's one of the reasons he appealed to me. I would have been, as a kid, a big Brooklyn Dodgers fan, but the team had moved to L.A. But at least we still had Gil Hodgers. And that's really something, you know, that... He was the only player to stay there. And he was, you know, it's just incredible reading this book and just seeing everyone that, everyone praised him. I mean, there were, except for a few folks that I want to get into, one in particular, uh, Ted Williams, and the other Earl Weaver. And I want you to talk about those two guys in relationship to why Gil Hodges is not in the Baseball Hall of Fame, because I thought, when I was growing up, looking just at his statistics on on the old baseball encyclopedias I used to get as a kid, that this guy was going to be in there. And just talk about Williams and Weaver and what their part okay. in preventing him from being in there. Let's let's start with um, uh, Ted Williams. Uh, for younger people who might not be all that familiar, Ted Williams always spoke about himself as the greatest. Uh, hitter that ever lived. And you know what? If you go back and look at his statistics and the kind of respect he had from the pitchers, he very well may have been right. But Ted Williams always liked to be the very best at anything he did, whether it was playing baseball or fly fishing or flying, uh, a, 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 you know, being a flyer pilot during World War II. But what I think, and I read a lot of quotes. Obviously, Williams passed away before I started to write this book. I couldn't speak with him. Um, but I read a, a number of quotes by Williams about Hodgers. And what I think the situation is, is that Hodgers, who was uh, a d deeply religious guy, he grew up uh, Catholic in Indiana. He would go to church every Sunday. Um, Williams, because of his relationship, um, with his his mom who worked in the Salvation Army, he was not all that necessarily in trouble with people who were more religious people. And I just think there was, these were two different folks. Um, and what happened, in, especially in 69, brings it to the fold in that, that year, was the first year that Ted Williams managed the Washington Senators. Hodges 
had his greatest success of his career as a manager in 69 when he led the New York Mets to a world championship. Now, that year, Hodges was picked as the manager of the year, not Ted Williams. And I'm sure on some level that irked Williams. I spoke to a number of the Washington Senators players, and they, and, um, they all said he was a phenomenal hitting coach, but Williams wasn't too much interested in other aspects of the game. For example, Ted Williams was the first coach, uh, so, sorry, first manager that had ever hired a bench coach. He hired this guy named Joe Camacho to be the bench coach. So oh, yeah. the people, right, because Williams was an outfielder. He wasn't all that familiar with the real minutia of running a team and running a game, and he delegated that to Camacho. Um, one of the quotes that I read was, was Williams was at the 69 World Series, and he made a comment that Eddie Yost, who's the third uh, base coach in the Mets, ran the team. I interviewed Eddie Yost. He told me nothing was, was like that, but there was this really very secretive uh, kind of signals that Hodges would give to Yost, and he would do it at times when the focus of the people in the stands would be in other places, um, and so Williams interpreted that, saying, okay, you know, Hodges never gives signs of the else running thing. But that's indicative of, I think, there was a little bit of an underlying jealousy because of the phenomenal success Hodges had, both as a player and a manager. Ted Williams never won a championship as either a player or a manager. He was in one World Series. He didn't hit all that well, and the Boston Red Sox lost. Hodges won two championships as a player, one in 1955, the only book only championship the Brooklyn Dodgers ever won, won in L.A., the first world the first world championship the Los Angeles Dodgers ever won, and then the miracle of 1969 where he led the Mets, the first expansion team to ever win a World Series. So, But the point is that how this directly impacted Hodges uh, later on in his Hall of Fame career. After Hodges, uh, Hodges had passed away in 1972, uh, he had started to be on the Hall of Fame ballot with the Riders in 1969. During the 15 years that the Riders voted for, him, voted for him, they were only supposed to look at him as a player. They couldn't consider technically his managerial career because he'd be again right. into the Hall of Fame as a player or as a manager. Looking at Gil Hodges just as a player is like trying to evaluate Julie Andrews as, you know, for some career uh, performer, you know, of all time kind of mark, and only look at her and say she's an actress, she's not a singer. Um, so that, I think, to some extent, and that also in the fact that the timing was in the 15 years Hodges was on the ballot, there were 10 players on the ballot who were amongst the greatest of all time, guys like Henry Aaron, Willie Mays, Sandy Koufax, Frank Robinson, um, Brooks Robinson. Hodges was great. Make no mistake about it. When he finished his career, he had hit more home runs than any other right-handed hitter at that time at the end of the 1962 season. That was his last whole season. He played a few games in early May for the Mets in 63 and then went directly to managing the Washington Center. But he was he had hit more home runs than any other right-handed hitter in baseball history except for one, Jimmy Fox. He was 10th on the all-time home run list. He was a, not just a great power hitter. He was a great fielder. So um, just that I want to make sure people understand he is really well-deserving between the overall contribution of his playing and managerial career to be in the hall. But what happened? 15 years ended. For whatever reason, he didn't get elected. 
but he did accumulate more votes in his 15 years with the writer than any other player who was not subsequently elected. And you know what? It's not, you know, it, it's really uh, a huge total. He got over 3,010. Um, and um, it, it's really, you, usually what happens is a guy who accumulates that many votes, once it goes to what they call the Veterans Committee, which is a, a number of players who are in the Hall of Fame, and some writers and some executives get together in a room once a year during the baseball winter meetings and decide who's going to get in and who's going to get out. The unfortunate part of the tie-in back to Ted Williams is when Hodges went on the veterans' ballot, that was just at the time that Ted Williams was very active, and Ted Williams wanted to get in his teammates. So these guys who are in the Hall of Fame, they're logical, and it makes sense. They want to get their, their, their teammates and their friends into the Hall of Fame. So... In the first year Ted Williams was on the committee, Bobby Dole, who was a great second baseman for the Boston Red Sox in the 40s, um, was elected. And I also found out from interviewing Joe Camacho, the bench coach, Don DiMaggio um, was another player that Ted Williams wanted to get elected. Don DiMaggio, people don't know who he was, but it's Joe DiMaggio's younger brother. He was a good player. He was nowhere near in the league with Joe DiMaggio. And Don DiMaggio actually told Williams, if you get me in, I'm not going to Cooperstown because I don't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. But the bottom line was, is the focus was that um, Williams was interested in getting these guys into the Hall of Fame. So how does he do it? He's got to downplay um, other people. And at that time, Hodges was the most logical choice. Now, Earl Williams... I interviewed Earl Williams before he passed away, and that you mean was Earl, Earl Weaver. Earl Weaver. Earl Weaver. Now we'll switch to Earl Weaver. Earl Weaver. I don't think he ever recovered from the 1969 World Series. And one of the things interviewing all of these players, but what hit me was, and, and managers, former managers and players, was how competitive they are and how that never goes away. I interviewed Weaver like 40 years after the 1969 World Series. He was still upset that, that Baltimore... It happened yesterday, too. You know, one thing when you talk to athletes, you can talk to them about an incident 50 years ago. It happened yesterday to them. Right. They might forget right. everything else, but they remember that moment. doesn't matter what right. sport it is. I have run into that many times, and they just remember everything. And if it's right. something like what happened with the Mets, you know, the Mets and the Orioles in 69, Weaver would never forget that. None of the Orioles would forget that. No, no. And uh, unfortunately, quite a few of them are in the Hall of Fame. Believe me, they're not pushing for Gil just to be in it. Um, but in Earl Weaver's case, you know, I tried to explain to him that the committee is supposed to look at the overall contribution of a person. That is literally the verbiage in, the, in like, the bylaws of the Baseball Hall of Fame, overall contribution. And he just kept saying, no, either you get in as a player or as a manager, which was what the criteria was um, when someone is up with the Baseball Writers Association of America. If anyone's really interested in this, um, Tom Verducci, who's a great writer, uh, for Sports Illustrated, did a very lengthy piece on SI.com specifically about the whole issue of Gil Hodgers and the Hall of Fame. And he's like a real deal major baseball writer. So that appeared this past November. You can probably check it out online. But when I spoke with Weaver, he said, okay, Hodges ended up with a losing record as a manager. And I tried to explain to him, well, the guy died when he was 47 years old. He never got to that more mature age of managing where 
usually um, if you take a case like Joe Torre, the guy's put in his due diligence, managed some pretty bad teams, and then he gets to a more mature point in his career and he gets to manage a really good team like the New York Yankees. Um, and he ends up in the Hall of Fame want... because of that. Exactly, and Joe Torre will be the first one to tell you uh, that if it were not for his years with the Yankees, he wouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Joe Torre's record as a manager, he had 100 more losses than he did wins when he started to manage the Yankees in 1996. And just by, by you know, chance, it was built there already when he joined in. He had two of the greatest players in the history of the game playing for him, Jeter and um, Mariano. I mean, you can't get better than that and all the other great players that they had. Um, but um, Hodges never got that chance. Um, but Weaver and I really think that, uh, and, yeah, and more. Uh, and I want my listeners to uh, join in. It's four two four six seven five eight three one five. I'm talking to more Zachter, the author of the book Gil Hodges: A Hall of Fame Life. It's on the University of Nebraska Press. And I really believe if Gil Hodges had lived, I think you're right as far as the he would have been the equal of Tory as far as his record. And I think the Mets probably would have won a couple of pennants. In the 70s and in the 80s, if he had stayed as the manager there, because he really willed his players to do much better than they were, because that Met team of 69 was not, and pitching-wise it was great, but except for a couple of hitters, that was not the greatest team. And even the team I grew up watching, Washington Senators, when he got them into sixth place in 67, and, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, sixth place, that's nothing. That was a major – that was like winning the World Series here. And he had right. a bunch of players that were just – again, except for a few players, he had guys that basically had no business in the major leagues. Yeah, he, he got he, them um, in – go ahead. No, yeah, yes, he absolutely. He – he. Um, Hodges spent two years in college before he went off to his military service, and he was, was training to be ultimately um, – uh, like a, a basically as a being a, a high school or college coach, and he was very well schooled and trained in teaching younger players fundamentals. Uh, so he was perfect for a young team like the Senators in the 1960s. That was an expansion team. Uh, people have to remember that isn't that was not the original Washington Senators team that moved out and became the Minnesota Twins. Um, this was the team that um, later moved and became the Texas Rangers. And they were the American League version of the Mets. They were a horrible team. Um, and I spoke to a number of players on that team. And it, almost man for man of those guys, they would tell me what a huge impact Hodges had on them in terms of teaching them how to be what Hodges' verbiage was a professional. What does that mean? That means just don't think about your own physicality. There's a lot more to baseball than just physical, uh, you know, ability to throw a ball or hit a ball. It involves thinking about the situation. Uh, if you're a pitcher, who's at bat? What's the count? What's the score? What inning is it? What is this guy going to look for? What did I pitch to him um, before? And those those players on the Senators, it was like they, you know, as opposed to the Met players that I spoke to had been interviewed many, many times before because of the famous 1969 miracle in their World Series win. Those Washington Center players, nobody had been calling up um, um, these players, guys like Jim Hannon, 
uh, and Dave oh, yeah, Baldwin. Dave Baldwin, Frank Howard, I mean, Fred Valentine. I mean, these are guys, I was happy to see that in the book because I was hoping you wouldn't, like, give devote, like, two pages to how uh, he was with the Senators on to the Mets now. But you gave a no. extensive coverage of that team and the reaction they had to Gil Hodges. And it was really, he was, you know, I mean, he was legendary here at the, in that period, even when they had the last place teams. That's they were right. still they one year they won sixty two and one lost a hundred. I think without him they probably would have won maybe they may have set the record for the worst team ever because they were just bad. But he willed right. them and he growing up I remember seeing him. He was actually managing that team. I mean, every game I can remember like it was the seventh game of the World Series with him. You could see that this That's guy was seriously managing. Exact. You're exactly right. Frank Howard said, said basically the exact same thing. He said, you do not realize when you have a bad team, that's when you really have to manage. It's not, not like penciling in, you know, seven all-stars into a lineup, you know, 150 out of 162 games, and you're going to end up winning. He platoon players. He thought about it, who to put in in, in late inning situations. A number of players told me, uh, for example, like Claude Osteen, he told me how Hodges was a master in the last three innings of a game. He had great anticipation of the way the innings would play out, and he would line up his pitchers so they would be available. He studied them all. He knew their weaknesses and strengths. And the players, because surely uh, uh, Hodges was as big as six foot two, about 200 pounds, and he was still a strong, powerful guy when he was managing at that point. And the players were intimidated by him because the way he worked it, he didn't say much to them. He basically delegated to his coaches the interactions with them. And that way, Hodges had been a Marine in World War II, and he learned there how the, the head of the unit, the head of the, the division platoon, deals with the people under him, and a lot of times he uses the people in between. And that silence and that distance creates a bit of an aura and a certain respect. And when Hodges blew, which he did on occasion, sometimes it was, I think, just he just couldn't take it anymore and just kind of got angry. Other times I think it was specifically um, purposeful and directed just to get people motivated. So that's also another reason, as well as his great skills and his patience in, in training and teaching young players on the fundamentals, was that respect they had for him. They didn't want to mess with um, Gil Hodges. I remember one of the players I interviewed was Mike McCormick, who was a pitcher um, briefly. He was an experienced pitcher, pitcher at that point with the Senators, and then they traded him. He actually won the um, Cy Young in, 19, yeah. in 1967 with the Giants. But he said to me, you did not want to have Hodges be the guy who was looking at you after you did the wrong thing. You just didn't want that because he could be, he would then call you into his office and he could be really intimidating and you you did not want to get called into the office. And the funny thing look, is that um, yeah. it always, when I was growing up, I remember always they would talk about his hands and you have pictures in the book of his hands. Right. Yeah. I mean, they, I mean, you're talking about LeBron James, Doctor, you know, Julius Irving hands. I mean, they're huge and they're right. amazing. Yes. And I, go ahead. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, he, he had this growth spurt when he was 17 years old, and at that point he grew to be, you know, about six feet tall and like 175 pounds, but his hands were, were big enough at that point. They were almost one foot across from the tip of his uh, um, thumb to the end of his pinky. So anyone out there, you can just measure how long that distance is. Uh, for most people, it's way less than almost... Uh, one foot across, and at that point he could either hold seven uh, pool balls or very easily palm a basketball. He was actually a phenomenal athlete and was a great basketball player as a, as a high school and college guy. He played football, basketball, track, and baseball in college, and he always felt that basketball was his best sport, and that was where if he was ever going to be a professional in any sport, he always thought it was that one. So huge hands good smarts. He was a terrific basketball player. And um, anyone I interviewed that ever shook his hand, they would all say this is that same thing to me. It's like your hand just got lost in his hand. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. And, you know, I know there are some listeners out there who are saying, well, you know, you're talking about this guy who played in the 50s, had this losing record, and you both were trying to explain how he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. But still, he hit 370 home runs. He batted 272. And you got guys who are waiting to get in there who aren't steroid uh, users who've done much more than that. And what do you, what do you say to someone like that? You know, someone will say, well, his only fame was uh, he won the World Series with the 69 Mets, but anyone could do that with Tom Seaver and, and Jerry Koosman and Tug McGraw. What, what do you say to someone like that? Um, I, well, I say two things. I say, first of all, I say there was a lot more to Gil Hodges than just being – an athlete, and you really should look at the way he accounted himself as a human being as, and as a person. Um, and there, there's this um, clause in there that says, look at integrity, character, and sportsmanship. A lot of people don't know that in 1947, which was the year Jackie Robinson came into the league, Gil Hodges, that was his first full season, too. He was a, a third-string catcher. And I interviewed Rachel Robinson. And Rachel Robinson told me that Gil Hodges was was one of the few players that would go out socially with Jackie Robinson, like when it wasn't a team function and everybody had to be together. And you had this the the issue of like there was uh, the Dodgers, there was the white team that basically Pee Wee Reese was the manager of, and a black team right. that Jackie Robinson was the leader of. Hodges was colorblind. Hodges was there, and Rachel said to me. Gil just knew what we needed, and he was there for you. You didn't even have to ask for it. So even though Pee Wee Reese is the one who's famously, you know, put his arm around um, Gil Hodges, uh, I'm sorry, about Jackie Robinson during the game uh, when Robinson was being booed, behind the scenes in terms of many um, instances, um, and Carl Erskine told this to me, um, Robinson might have had more incidents, but they always knew that, that Hodges was there at first base next to Robinson, and Hodges was considered to be one of the strongest guys in baseball, and he kept people in line. He was always the guys breaking up the fight, not starting. But I would bring an example up like that to people and say, there's a lot more to baseball than just the statistics. And even then, right. uh, what, the, what, what you've got to look at is, the Hall of Fame really loves guys who are like all at the greatest in their one particular aspect. For example, uh, Maury Wills. Maury Wills was one of the most phenomenal base dealers of all time. 
he's a perfect kind of guy to be in the Hall of Fame because he basically changed the way baseball was played in the 1960s and he made it a throwback to the way they played the game 50 years before where, where base stealing was so important. But they don't really focus in on someone like Hodges, who was a great home run hitter, was the was a three-time gold glove winner at first base, which is one of the neglected aspects of his game. I interviewed some old-time riders, and they told me he was the best right-handed field, fielding first baseman they ever saw. And in, in one of them, who was in the New York area, he said he was the best fielding first baseman he ever saw up until Keith Hernandez played in the 70s and in, in the 80s. And for anyone who's old enough to remember, Keith Hernandez was phenomenal. Hodges was not quite as good because he was not a left-handed first baseman at the huge advantage, but he was, was on par with someone like Hernandez. Great fielder, great slugging home run hitter, and then a phenomenal manager. But that's the overall contribution, and plus a kind of person who who stood up for his players when they needed to be standing up for. For example, in 1968, when Bobby Kennedy was shot, he was the United States Senator from New York. This is Jack Kennedy's younger brother, who then was running for um, the, the nomination, Democratic nomination for president. The Mets and their their um, management wanted the Mets to play on the day of Robert Kennedy's funeral. And Hodges aligned himself with the players and said, no, no, that would not be right. And basically, after he took a position with them and voted with them, management backed down. And that day of Kennedy's funeral, they did not play. So where do you put this stuff in? You can't measure integrity and character. It's in there as a clause. And the way it's being used now, I think it's being used as a hammer against guys like Bobby Bonds and Clemens and Pete Rose who were phenomenal players who should all be in the Hall of Fame, but because of the pain of whether it's steroids or gambling, right. you know, or not in. So I think that the truth is I really think the people in the Baseball Hall of Fame wish that clause would disappear. Unfortunately, it's in there, and, you know, it's, it's, um, it has the effect it's had. So my answer also, and one specific thing that a lot of young people who mentioned that don't know, what you're supposed to do on the Veterans Committee is compare people to other veterans of their era. And you can't look at Hodges' 370 home runs that was um, technically when his career ended in, in May of 1963, he was 11th on the all-time home run list. Today his figure is 75th. It doesn't seem like a lot of home runs. He didn't even have 400 home runs. But back then... 300 home runs was the equivalent of what 500 is today. And also, people also forget, the pitching mounds were 15 inches high. They were not lowered to 10 inches until 1969. All of those home runs Hodges hit were, were, you know, were pitchers had much more advantage. And also, people forget, for all of Hodges' um, playing career, there was only 154-game schedule. And for a guy like Hodges, who's been in the league for so many years, 154 is supposed to 162 games. And Hodges invariably played, unless he was injured in every game. He lost like 60 to 80 games over the course of his career, not even considering the fact that he served his country as a Marine on Okinawa for, for during World War II. And his his career was delayed by two seasons for that. So there's the the piece of the kind of person he was, the overall contribution because he did so many things so well. And then this, this last piece where you got to consider the statistics in the context of their times. I, I mean, just one last point on the stats. 
every single player who hit at least 300 home runs as of the end of the 1962 season, which was Hodges' last full season as a player, every single one of them is in the Baseball Hall of Fame except one. And, and, the, th- yeah, and, and the thing that you talk about in the book that I didn't know is when he hit that 370 home run, he was interviewed by Ralph Kiner, and that's the guy who he broke. He went past Ralph Kiner, who had 369 home runs. And oh, I thought that, that was is, really it, just... Yes, Go ahead. that's exactly right. And I interviewed Ralph Kiner. He's one of the people I spoke to. And he said one of the most touching things ever, that anybody said to me. He said to me, he wished there was one season, there, and if people don't remember, Ralph Kiner was this phenomenal home run hitter for the Pittsburgh Pirates in the 1940s into the early 50s. He, was, he got injured and his career ended pretty abruptly, but he was a great home run hitter, didn't strike out much, um, really strong at that aspect of the game. Was not the greatest fielder, uh, was a very slow base runner, but phenomenal hitter, uh, power hitter. He told me, and there was one season where uh, Kiner ended up hitting two more home runs than Hodges, and Hodges finished in second place in the National League home run contest. I think, and I'm going by memory, I think it was 1951, um, uh, and I think Kiner's ended up hitting like 42 home runs, and Hodges only had 40. Uh, Kiner said to me, Mort, I wish I had hit a couple of home runs less so Gill would have won the home run crown that season because one of the things people always knock on Hodges is he never led the league in in any one season in home runs or any other statistic. Well, actually, that's that is largely true, but not a hundred percent. Ironically, the one statistic that for a seasonal record, Gil Hodges still holds the record for is 19 sacrifice flies in a season. There's a classic example of giving up yourself. You got a runner on third base. You got to hit a deep fly ball to the outfield. Okay, I'm not going to try and poke it to right field for a single. I want to make sure I I launch the ball in the air and I'm going to give up an out, give up myself, but the run's going to score and it's going to be better for my team. If there's any ironic statistic that that's the one um, record that he still holds, that's really it. That's something. And, you know, Mort, we could go on all day. with. We haven't even touched on the Mets stuff and the early Brooklyn stuff, but the book is just amazing. You did a superb job with this book. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to come on today. And do you have a website um, if anyone wants to reach you? Yes, it's www.mortzachter, M-O-R-T-Z-A-C-H-T-E-R.com. And if you just Google my name, you'll you'll get to the website, Mort Zachter. Um And I can't thank you enough um, for having me on and let me talk a bit about Gil Hodges. I think, you know, to me he's already in the Hall of Fame, and I just want to thank you for writing this book. Hope to meet you in person one day. Thanks so much, Mort. Thank you very much, Greg. Bye now. Take care. And again, that was Morgan Zachter, the author of the book, Gil Hodges, A Hall of Fame Life. It's on the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, great. You know, I was really surprised with the book. I didn't know what to expect, but it's a good read. I'm not just saying that because I just interviewed her. It is a very good read. And it gets into, we didn't get into the, all of the Jackie Robinson stuff in here because it's very, he did. Gil Hodges was very supportive of integration of African American ball players. It's just a fascinating book to read. So I 
Hope you get a chance to check that out or go to Mort's website. But we're going to switch gears right now because we're getting ready to have another guest on here. But before we do that, for the folks out there, particularly those listening at KUHS Denver TV and Radio, I want to say hi to you out there. You'll hear this on a delayed basis, as always. This will be on Wednesday. I want to say hi to all my friends in Denver out there in particular, thanking Henry Archuleta for being the founder and creator of KUHS and being kind enough to have me on there on a delayed basis. What we're going to do with you, and I know a lot of y'all love to hear baseball, but you want to hear some slow jams, so we're going to do a couple of slow jams right now for you because they haven't done it in a while. So we're going to do some for you right now, starting off with, I think we'll do Kim. We're going to do a little bit of Kim here and Why Should You Stay? So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Yeah. 
winding roads seem to mark the time. The love I had, mine, now gone. Will you return? I know you will. Until then. Since you've been gone. I do. 
right. I hope you enjoyed that little slow jam interlude there, and that was Barbara Lynn, Until Then I'll Suffer. Before that, we did foreplay featuring Shantae Moore. That was foreplay with Nathan East on bass, Bob James on piano, Harvey Mason on drums, and Larry Carlton on the guitar. And that was, the name of that was Save Some Love for Me. And before that, we did Bloodstone, Something's Missing. Then we did One Way, featuring Al Hudson, Guess You Didn't Know It. And then we started to set off with Kim, Why Should I Stay? And I hope you stay for the next hour of the Root and Root Show on Blog Talk Radio and also on a delayed basis on KUHS Radio and TV in Denver, Colorado. And I just want to say again thanks to my friends out there in Colorado. And we're going to start the second part of the show now for a book that really, it's actually a very short book, but it sums up all that happened in 1964 at a particular event. And I'm talking about showdown at the 1964 Democratic Convention, Lyndon Johnson, Mississippi, and Civil Rights, as written by my next guest, John C. Skipper. And we had John on here before, a month ago, to talk about the legendary one and only Frank Robinson. And we had John on because I was talking to him after the show, and he said, well, I wrote this book. I wanted to talk to him about the book about the Democratic Convention, and I'm happy to have him back on. Are you there, John? I sure am. All right. And John said he could talk for he could talk forever about this book. But we're going to, we only have like 25 minutes, so we're not going to do it forever. <laughs> but what I want to do before we start is let you know that We've had a number of shows on here about some of the folks in the book already. In particular, last month we did a hour on Fannie Lou Hamer, so you don't really have to. My listeners already know about Fannie Lou Hamer's history and all that, so you don't really have to get into her. But I do want you to talk about, I'm going to name some figures in this book, and you just discuss them. But first of all, tell the listeners, and listeners you can join in at, 424-675-8315. I'm talking to John C. Skipper, author of the book on McFarland Press, Showdown at the 1964 Democratic Convention, Lyndon Johnson, Mississippi, and Civil Rights. And and these names are still current because of the movie Selma, what's going on right now in Mississippi, and the issue of voting rights. It's still current, you know, over, you know, 60, 70-some years later. So, John, first of all, tell the listeners, why did you decide to write this book? I mean, you go from baseball to this. What what made you write this one? Well, I think, excuse me, I think the easy answer, Greg, is that the two of my passions are uh, baseball and politics. I, I enjoy reading about them. I enjoy uh, researching them. And uh, when I, I did a book a few years ago on the history of the Iowa caucuses, and I went way back to uh previous uh, uh, conventions and that sort of thing, and I came across uh, some information about this Democratic, or, yeah, the Democratic Convention of 1964, and it, uh, in many ways, it, it showed the amazing manipulative powers of Lyndon Johnson, and I became fascinated with it, started to look into it. Uh, it was the, the, the year that uh, the Mississippi People in Mississippi uh, were disenfranchised. The Negroes, as they called them back then, the Negroes in Mississippi uh, 
didn't have the, the the right to vote. They were prevented from voting. They were prevented from even um, having any say in in who represented them, of course. And uh, so, to make a really long story short, some people organized a, a Mississippi Freedom Party, and they decided to go to the uh, convention in Atlantic City and demand that they be seated as delegates uh, from Mississippi, uh, rather than the all-white. Uh, delegation that was already there that uh, had been elected uh, by excluding them from from the process. So that's that's kind of the setup for what happened in in uh, Atlantic City. Uh, it was a, as I say, it was a group of uh, uh, some whites, but but mostly African uh, Americans going and wanting to be seated. And incidentally, your uh, listeners might be interested in knowing that uh, Harry Belafonte. And Sidney Poitier uh, financed their trip from Mississippi to uh, Atlantic City, or they wouldn't have been able to do it. Right, because we had talked about that when we were talking about Fannie Lou Hamer. And, you know, Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier were very instrumental in getting them up there. But I want to talk about, I want to start yeah. with some of the folks involved in this. Um, some of the folks are kind of, we've mentioned this person on the show in the past, but not extensively as I want you to do right now. I'm talking about Robert Moses. Talk a little bit about Robert Moses and his relationship to one of the uh, the white guy he teams up with to work at the well, convention. Moses, Just talk about him. Sure, Robert Robert Moses uh, was a, a brilliant uh, young man. Uh, lived in uh, raised and lived in in New York. Uh, was was uh, very well educated, and and. Uh, he be, he became interested in the plight of the people in in uh, Mississippi, and uh, he, he's the one that actually uh, went down to Mississippi, uh, visited uh, uh, many of the towns and cities, talked talked with a lot of people, and kind of got the the organization going that that uh, turned out to be the Freedom Summer uh, movement. And uh, he became uh, acquainted with a lot of people, both blacks and whites, down there, and was able to uh, organize them and uh, and uh, and motivate them. To one of the things that that uh, uh, was a real challenge uh, was that the blacks had been so deprived for so many years that uh, if you grew up in Mississippi, you just figured, well, you know, I'm I'm not going to be allowed to vote. I'm not going to be allowed to do this or do that. And Moses had the challenge of of trying to change those those attitudes that have been ingrained in these people, and and uh, and he was able to do that. And and uh, gradually, uh, the movement got got larger. They got uh, help from a lot of people, and uh, but he was he was the the organizer. He was he was the brains behind it to begin with. And you know, and he had the right last name Moses because he was. You know, he was in the background, but he did so much yeah. down there and in yeah. the whole civil rights movement. Now, talk about, right. you know, this one person I didn't even know about, you know, because you always think you know everything, you know, but you find out about folks. I want you to talk about uh, Congresswoman Eva Green of Oregon, because she is a key figure. Well, yeah, I, in order to do that, I'm going to have to move the story along a little bit. Uh, Greg, so well, let's, 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 well, let's, before up. we get to her, let's let's back up again and let's um, let's talk about the whole, you know, the folks like Eastland, 
and the whole, you know, the racist aspect of the Mississippi um, delegation. Sure. Talk about okay. that. You bet. The, uh, there were the, the two senators in Mississippi, the two United States senators in Mississippi, were uh, James Eastland and, and um, uh, John Stennis. And both of them were, were uh, segregationists, and frankly, they had to be, to be elected. But again, it was a way of life down there. Nobody thought any, anything of it. But uh, so any, anything that, that uh, came up with regards uh, to civil rights, they were going to be against, they were going to fight it, and, and, uh, and there were repercussions for, for uh, uh, people who tried to buck the system. Another uh, uh, name that, that comes to mind, I don't know whether, Greg, you were going to mention this or not, was a fellow named Aaron Henry. Oh, yeah, because he's uh, on the it's, cover it's of, of my, the book, as a matter of fact. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite names because you turn it around and it's Henry Aaron. But anyway, uh, Aaron, Aaron Henry uh, was uh, one of the leaders of the, of the mo- movement uh, down there after, after Bob Moses uh, got down, down there. And just to give you an example of what life was like in the 1950s and 60s in Mississippi, uh, Aaron Henry uh, one time tried to organize people to to uh, register to vote, and he was arrested. And uh, as part of his punishment, he was chained to the back of a garbage truck and and driven around town uh, on the back of the uh, on the back of the garbage truck to to uh, publicly uh, humil- humiliate him. Uh, people who tried blacks who tried to register to vote. Uh, were often arrested, and their names were put in the put in the local newspapers, so that that uh, again as a as a part of uh, not just punishment but humiliation. Right. And 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 I know for some look, young listeners, I mean, even seeing I know some of you out there saw the movie Selma and been looking at the documentaries over the years, but even seeing that stuff, it's still hard to believe that, that happened not too long ago. Oh. That things. And you know, and you can argue that there's still some things right now going on in Mississippi that you never thought would happen again. You know, we don't know if uh, the young man that was recently found was he lynched or did he commit suicide. But it's still yeah. a scary situation. And as right. I said earlier, to, right. you know, begin the segment of the show, there's still issues down there with voting rights. There's still, you know, there are still sure. counties down there that are. You know that are worse than third world countries, Frank. And it is almost right. impossible to vote or do anything. But go ahead, you know, John. Let me ask you about well, some more folks. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that, that one of the things that that uh, your listeners need to know about Lyndon Johnson is that that uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, had kind of a threefold uh, way about him. Uh, one was that that he realized that that if you had power, you could do good for the people, and and if you did good for the people, they would love you. They you would receive their their adulation, uh, and that's what he really wanted. But it it started with power. If you didn't have the power, you couldn't do any of that. You weren't going to be able to do anything for the people, and you weren't going to be able to to uh, receive their their uh, love and adoration, as as I mentioned, and. And, but Johnson Johnson would do things just by instinct that most of us would have to plan for months. He just had that kind of mind. He uh, 
uh, a lot of people in Washington referred to what they called the Johnson treatment. And the Johnson treatment was how Lyndon Johnson would manipulate you to getting what he wanted. Uh, and, and it was just amazing. And, and I'm going to move the story along here a little bit, uh, Greg, uh, for, for your listeners. The uh, Mississippi delegation was going to go to the convention. They were going to go to the credentials committee and ask that they be seated uh, in place of the uh, regular Mississippi delegation. They were, they were assured, or they just felt sure, that they would have the support of Lyndon Johnson because, after all, he had just signed the Civil Rights Bill. He was on their side. What they didn't realize was that that Johnson uh, didn't want anything to happen that would upset the convention. He felt like that convention was going to be a coronation for him. Remember what we talked about, the adulation that he wanted. Right. And he didn't want any fight on, he didn't want any fight on the convention floor. So uh, he, uh, among other things, uh, he uh, talked to J. Edgar Hoover, who was the FBI director, and uh, Johnson ordered the FBI to go to Atlantic City, and there were 21 FBI agents in, in, in Atlantic City for that convention. Now imagine that, assigning 21 FBI agents. And they bugged the, the hotel rooms of people like Martin Luther King and Aaron Henry. Uh, they impersonated news people and, and uh, interviewed uh, people at, at the convention who, who thought they were just talking to news people, but what they were doing was they were giving information uh, that Lyndon Johnson could u- could use against them. It was it was scandalous. It was absolutely scandalous. Uh, yeah, you know, and it's, happened, it's a folks. funny thing, John. Uh, by the way, as you're saying this, I know there are some folks out there who are saying who are LBJ apologists are saying, "Oh no, he never did that." You know, it's, you sound like you uh, wrote the movie Selma or something. You're trying to make him a bad yeah. guy, but you got to remember that Lyndon Johnson was a pure politician. Politician does not mean being a nice person. No. And as John it, has been no, saying, it, yeah. you, wanna, and, you don't want to stay on the top, and you'll do anything. Yeah. The, the only thing, Greg, the only thing that power loves is more power. You know, That's once right. you have power, what what are you gonna what what are you going to uh, aspire for? Well, more more power. And um, but here's here's what happened at the convention. It's just it's just remarkable. I will try to summarize it for you. In order to be seated, this group had to go to the credentials committee. It was 110 people uh, on the credentials uh, committee, and they had to convince the credentials committee that they should be seated rather than Johnson. <clears throat> Johnson knew that if if this predominantly black delegation was seated and the others uh, would be uh, uh, removed, that that he would lose Mississippi. The Mississippi delegation, the regular Mississippi delegation would walk out. If the regular Mississippi delegation walked out, so would Louisiana, so would so would uh, Alabama, so would Georgia, and and so on, in in protest. But he also knew that he would lose them in November in the general election. So. So he thought where he had to where he had to stop it was to nip it in the bud in the, at the in the credentials committee. So he needed, but he he needed to do this all behind the scenes because the president naturally wouldn't get involved in anything as nasty as this. Back in those days, you didn't know who the vice presidential candidate was going to be. 
because it, it, it just usually wasn't announced until the convention. But there were a lot of people who wanted right. to be vice president, and one of them was Hubert Humphrey. So Jonathan contacted Humphrey. He didn't mention the vice president. He didn't have to. He just told uh, Humphrey to get to Atlantic City and reach, reach a compromise of some kind uh, with this delegation to stop it from going to the convention floor. So obviously uh, Humphrey had something at stake politically, in in doing something to help Lyndon Johnson. One of the people on the credentials committee was a young uh, attorney general from Minnesota by the name of Walter Mondale. And if uh, Humphrey uh, did his job and was eventually elected vice president, there would be an opening for the in the U.S. Senate uh, from Minnesota. And guess who would be in line for that? A fellow named Walter Mondale. So Johnson had all the dominoes lined up uh, to to uh, help him. It's, you know, and you then, scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's that's how that's how the game yeah. works there. You, you, yeah, yeah. And yet, and yet, when when all is said and done, these these uh, people are are uh, remembered uh, in in many uh, uh, circles. Uh, for all they did for civil rights, and, and uh, in, in fairness, they did. What we're talking about is how they did it. And, and uh, at any rate, the, the uh, it was becoming a standoff. And uh, Johnson brought in Walter Ruther, who was the head of the United Auto Workers in Detroit, a big union guy, and used to oh, yeah. and very accustomed to negotiations because that's what happens every year, you know, with big union negotiations. So Ruther came in and basically told people, "Here's here's what's going to happen. Uh, we're going to you're not going to you are not going to be be seated in place of the delegation, but we're going to but we are going to uh, uh, give you two at-large seats so that you can be at, at the convention." And uh, they even named the, 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 the two people who would be the delegates. Well, Fannie Lou Hamer, among others, said, hey, you know, we didn't come all the way to Washington for two, for two delegates. And the other thing, Greg, was that with Walter Ruther, or in effect Lyndon Johnson, picking who those delegates would be, uh, the, the black people said, well, nothing's changed. Now, the white people are not only telling us what to do, they're picking the people, you know. And, uh, and, and this is a whole, you know, I mean, this this is a whole segment of history that is really, as you were saying earlier, it's kind of, you looked at some of these folks as civil rights supporters, which they were in one sense, but in another sense, there's this ruthlessness that's going on yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah. And I want to, you know, I think this is a perfect time to bring up again Congresswoman Edith Green of Oregon. But she's a totally forgotten figure of this whole yeah. era. Well, she was a, uh, she, you know, and uh, you know, I, I hate to talk in these terms, but I think in order for for you listeners to understand, we have to identify that that uh, she was a white woman, and and uh, but she under she and she was one of these committee uh, members, and and uh, she uh, sympathized with the the uh, freedom uh, people. And and uh, became kind of an obstacle uh, to Lyndon Johnson and and what he what he wanted, and and uh, and you're right, she's one of the forgotten figures in this. But I don't think people, I don't think even you or I can imagine the pressure you must be under 
uh, when you were going against the President of the United States, including a ruthless And, and you're a woman in 1964. Yeah, 1964, yeah. you're a woman, you right. know, going against the President. I yeah. mean, that's, that's, the, that's your destiny right. there, basically. Yeah. But one thing, and we yeah. don't, you know, there's so much we can talk about in this. I know so many I folks, told you we could. You know, maybe I'll do a special show one day and give give you eight hours to do it. But, you know, one thing <laughs> that I will say yeah. about Johnson, and I want you to talk about this because you mentioned, you talk about the Republican Revolution. Talk about what Johnson knew was going to happen. Because I'll give him credit for this. He predicted what was going to happen down oh, the line. Oh, yes. Yep. No, you're right. You're right. Uh, Johnson... Uh, be, be, because because of the civil rights movement, because Johnson Johnson signed the civil rights bill, and, and we must remember that the next year he also signed the voting rights bill, and so right. on. And and in and in doing it, he he told his people that that uh, the uh, the the Democrats will lose the South for for generations to come, and and he was absolutely right. And in, in fact, in the in the book, I, I document. The uh, southern states that voted Democrat, Democrat, Democrat for for years and years, and but not after 1964, the tide the tide had turned. And, yeah, I was about to mention uh, that that page of page 174 because you do a great job of it's amazing how it happens. Yeah, and 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 one of the one of the interesting things I think about the book, uh, Greg, and, and something I'm proud of is that what we say we document. You know, he he. Uh, Johnson said they would lose the South, and they did. They, when uh, uh, Jimmy Carter uh, was elected, uh, uh, nominated and elected, they they uh, carried a couple of uh, Southern states. And when Barack Obama was was elected, uh, they they did. But but not. But those were the exceptions, and have been the exceptions for for a generation. Just as Johnson. Uh, predicted because in, the, in addition to everything else, Johnson was a smart politician. But uh, and, and that, you know, and that's another thing I've actually forgotten. You know, he was very shrewd, very wise. He, he, uh, he well, he, he did a lot of interesting things. He he uh, uh, knew the people in Congress so well that he knew their he knew their strengths and the, he knew their weaknesses, and. Uh, and I said, as I said, he was ruthless um, to in, in getting in getting uh, what he wanted. I want to tell you one other quick quick story that illustrates that. Uh, when he was trying to get his war on poverty uh, through Congress, uh, some of the southern some of the southern uh, d- Democrats uh, said they were going to vote against it, and the reason was that the the guy that was the head of the war on poverty was Sergeant Shriver. But his his deputy was a fellow whose background was Russian and Jewish, and the Southern senator said they would never they would never vote for him, and they and Johnson needed his votes uh, or their votes uh, to get the war on poverty through. So Johnson told Shriver that he was going to have to fire this guy, and Shriver was just devastated because the guy had done nothing wrong. But at any rate, he he fired him, and later uh, at a at a press conference, Johnson was asked if if it was true that somebody was fired in order to get this thing through, and Johnson said, "No, that's that's totally wrong." Well, somebody who's a part of the administration who saw all this was shocked that 
uh, first of all, the guy had been fired, and second of all, that the Johnson had lied about it. So he went to his boss to to talk about it because the guy was just just uh, he couldn't believe this had happened. And his boss was Robert McNamara, who was who was Secretary of Defense at the time. And McNamara told him, he, he said, "Son, you got to learn a rule of government. The rule of government is <clears throat> that we do we that we do." Uh, what is ever for the greater good of the people. Whatever is the greater good of the people is defined by the President of the United States, and nobody is indispensable. And I thought, you know what? That was true in 1964, and I'm afraid that it's true today, too, that the greater good is, is, is determined by power, and whatever they determine, whatever they determine is the greater good, is something that you and I and everyone else is going to have to live by. And and uh, I think that's just true today. It is, John. And I just, you know, and that's why I wanted you on the show again because this book, you know, I know some folks may say, well, you're talking about '64, but as you listen to what John is saying, and if you get this book, you'll see it's relevant. I mean, it's relevant right now. Nothing, the names change, but the situations have not changed at all. And John, you have done a a great job, and this is not, I don't want people thinking this is a long textbook. This is a very short book that encompasses that whole period. You did a great job with this, John, and I just want to thank you again. And if anyone wants to reach you, if you have a, I forget to ask you the last time, do you have a website? I don't have a website, but I but uh, I have an email address if anybody wanted to, to uh, write to me or know more, more about the book. Uh, yeah. They could do that. Incidentally, incidentally, if somebody's interested in getting the book, the the website for the publisher is it's of course www, and it's McFarland Pub M C F A R L A N D P U B dot com, and I'm told that that if you order the book, you'll get it within three to five days. No, so you certainly will, and it's a you know it's worth the get. I mean, this is. A good book is still relevant. And, you know, John, you did a great job on this. And I didn't ask you last time, what's, what's your next book going to be? Is it going to be Politics or Baseball? You're going to laugh. You're going to laugh. I'm, you know, right now I've got I've got about 30,000 words done on the 1964 Republican Convention with Gary Goldwater. <laughs> <laughs> i got to have you back on so, when you're done. Right? Later in the year, we've got to talk about that one because – you know, people really don't talk about that convention. That's funny. No. I can't think of a book that's well, out there that anyone's talked about it. No, and and uh, back in those days, too, the conventions meant a lot, a lot more. There was a lot more uh, backroom wheeling and dealing than there is now. The conventions now, uh, the young people don't realize how the, the conventions now are pretty well staged. They're, they oh, yeah. are, are productive. It's corporate. You know, we're, we're, it's really corporate. Yeah. It's a it's a, it's American Idol. It's a it's, that's what it is. Super Bowl yeah. halftime show. You, that's you all got, it is. Yeah, it's fairly that's predictable. It. You can you know on Monday what's going to happen on Thursday. That's but, right. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't uh, that way back back in in those days. And and frankly, the publisher uh, I think was satisfied enough with the book that I'd done on the Democratic convention. They said, well, let's do one on the Republican convention because it was pretty wild too because. Barry Goldwater was was uh, seen as, as an extremist, somebody who was going to uh, lead us into war. Barry Goldwater was one well, of the Well, not just lead us into war. Was, you know, I was a little kid then, but, I mean, the way they talked talk to us, he was going to lead us to the end of the world. The world was coming yep, to the end because he, of Barry Goldwater. 
Yeah, and he was also one of six senators who voted against the Civil Rights Bill. Did yeah. you know that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, so, I knew that. It's anyway, that's... Fascinating. You know, I'm looking forward to talking to you again about that book, John. So I just want to thank you for coming on today again. And yeah. just look forward to maybe one day meeting you in person. But, yeah, thank you so much for doing all the books you do, you know, everything well, listen, you do I, there. So. I appreciate ahead, that. John. And if we meet... If we meet in person, I'll buy the coffee, Greg. All right. That sounds good. Well, you take care, John. All right. Thanks a lot. Goodbye. And, again, that was John C. Skipper. We'll be back on here later on. When he completes the other book, he'll be back on here. Showdown at the 1964 Democratic Convention, Lyndon Johnson, Mississippi and Civil Rights, John C. Skipper. It is on McFarland Press. Go check it out. Great book. And time to get back to music now. Now, I hope you know. I hope, you know what we try to do. We try to do education and education. Edum- 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 I don't know entertainment, but, but anyway, we try to do both on here. And I hope you're enjoying it. Get, you learn the roots of different historical subjects on current news events, and also you learn the roots of different styles of music. And as I was saying too, before we get into some fun with the music. There is, as we speak on Saturday, March 21st, we don't know if it was a lynching or it was a suicide, but the thing is, it was an incident that happened in Mississippi with a guy down there named Bird, which is funny because I think his name is Otis Bird, and his last name is the same one as James Bird, who was lynched on the back of a truck years ago in Texas. So, it's, you know, history, unfortunately, there's a lot of coincidences, and things keep coming back. If you don't follow history, things will come back. Malcolm X said, you got to know your history so you know what's going on. And before I go on, I want to say something, too. One of my mentors, a mentor to a lot of people, passed this week. And I'm talking about the great Yusef Ben-Jokana, as he was known, Dr. Ben. wrote many books on Egyptology, African history, religion, just an amazing scholar. He passed to the ancestors at the age of 96 years young. And if you've never read any stuff by Yusef Ben-Jokana, I suggest you start Googling his name, going on websites and buying the stuff. Because there's things that if, if you're depending on what you learned in school, you're not going to know anything until you read what he what he was writing, what he was throwing out there, because it's amazing. So we lost one of the great ones. But he's gone on to join the other ancestors and just really, you know, just he left a legacy, amazing legacy in literature and all. So, yeah, check out Yusuf Ben-Jokhanan. And, you know, there's just so much going on. And we, you know, I want to say in advance that next week we'll be doing a show Friday evening on gospel music, the origins of it in Chicago. And that's going to be, you know, all my friends out there in Denver who listen to me for many years on the gospel train on KUVO. We'll be doing all gospel music, so I know you'll love that. But right now, we're going to get into some little dance music here, and I'm going to do right now one I haven't heard in years, but this is Ripple. I don't know what it is, but sure is funky, so let's hear that on the Root and Root Show.
was just how it had to be. Just take a look around, boy. Can't see eyes up on rushing. Girls are just rushing. With rocks and scratch. While her more percussion. Setting the stage for the stage to get set off. I bust a rhyme on the dance with this jet off. You get off because you bit off. More than you can chew. Now watch the dynamic duo do. Well, it's a go-go thing. Come on, rock and swing. You gotta roll with kid and play. Now everybody sing. Hot nuts, 
got nuts to sell. Selling one for five, two for ten. If you buy them once, you'll buy them again. Selling nuts. Hot nuts. Buy from the peanut man. Nuts. Hot nuts. Anybody here want to buy my nuts? Selling nuts. Hot nuts. I've got nuts for sale. Tell me your nuts is mighty fine, but I bet your nuts isn't hard as mine. Selling nuts, hard nuts, fine from the peanut man. Selling nuts, hard nuts. Anybody here wanna buy my nuts? Selling nuts, hard nuts. I've got nuts for sale. And they tell me your nuts is mighty small. Best to have small nuts than no nuts at all. Selling nuts, hot nuts. You buy 'em from the peanut man.
crazy. And like I said, a lot of folks have sampled that pieces off that. And that's a go-go group out of the one and only where I am right now in D.C. Sluggo and crazy. And I hope you enjoy it. The show this evening, the Root and Root Show. I want to thank my guests again, Mort uh, Zachter, for being on talking about the great Gil Hodges. And then my buddy John C. Skipper back on to talk about the showdown at the 1964 Democratic Convention. And also, I hope you enjoyed the music, the slow jams, the, the blues, and the little go go music and hip hop. But again, this is Greg Rashid. If you want to um, make suggestions for the show, if you got topics, because people do make suggestions that I follow up on, you can go to my website, I mean, my Facebook site, Greg, G R E G, last name Rashid, R A S H E E D. Go to Twitter. It's uh, hashtag Unifix, U-N-I, F as in Frank, I-C-S as in Sam, Unifix. And you can go to the blogtalkradio.com site, look for The Root and Root Show. And just any suggestions you have, if you want to sponsor the show, we're always looking for advertisers for this show. That would be really great. We're getting a lot of followers, supporters. Continue to listen to the show. We'll be on next Friday and so this is Greg Rashid again. Go and love him. Go and peace. And we'll be on or a different time in Denver, obviously, but on KUHS Denver Radio and Television. So go and love him. Go in peace. Thank you, Henry Archuleta, again for having me on there on a delayed basis. But this is Greg Rashid again. We'll see you next time. We'll be playing next show gospel music, talking about gospel music from Chicago, where it originated. Go and love him. Go in peace. And we'll see you next time. Take care and have a safe week.